And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you're having a great week. Um, it was a fun show today. It was a good show today. I was joined by Reed Cooley from Young Americans for Liberty. Um, and it was a good chat. We covered a lot of stuff. We talked about uh, Trump's uh, rollout for his uh, re-election campaign. Um, we talked about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez again. Um, not because I wanted to, but because this crazy... Communists will not keep her mouth shut. Um, this time, she's, of course, if you missed it, she's, a, you know, comparing the United States to Nazi Germany, you know, um, saying that uh, detaining illegals on the southern border is just like Auschwitz, that kind of stuff, the usual. And we, we took a deep dive into uh, what's going on in Venezuela as well. Um, so, yeah, but before I get to read, um, I have to remind you guys, if you haven't already, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. And if you haven't already, I don't know what's wrong with you, but please subscribe. you got to subscribe, people. Um, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. All right, without further ado, here's my chat with Reed Cooley. <laughs> All right, guys, we're here with Reed Cooley from Young Americans for Liberty. Reed, thanks for taking the time, brother. Uh, thanks, Brady. All right, so a lot to get to today. Um, a, a lot to get to, as always, today, um, since we only do two podcasts a week. Um, let's start with uh, the President of the United States. Trump officially announced his reelection campaign at a wild rally last night in Florida. Um, you know, it was a typical Trump speech. I, I didn't catch the whole thing, but I, I you know, looked up the, the highlights, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm not really a speech guy this far out from an election. I, I, I can't put myself through like every speech that all these guys make. I, I, I can't handle it. But uh, <laughs> it seemed like a pretty good speech, a very Trumpy speech, um, you know, attacking the Democrats, attacking the media. There was several chants of CNN sucks, which is always fun. Um, but the big takeaway was- for me was this morning the Trump campaign announced that they had raised twenty four point eight million dollars in the first twenty four hours. Of Trump's re-election effort, over a million dollars an hour for a full day, which bro- which broke all records for for one day in fundraising for any political candidate. I mean, that is a staggering number. What, what's your what's your biggest takeaway? Yeah, I mean, well, as far first off, as far as being a speech guy, I'm not completely sure that uh, the the Trump is much of a speech guy no, either. Right? No, I no. mean, whatever you do, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you try to watch this guy's speeches, and like, I mean, I've seen you know, some of the most fanatic. Radical Trump supporters go to his rallies and, you know, like 30 minutes into it, they're just rolling their eyes because they're so bored, all that. And he's saying the same things over and over. But as far as the substantive issue, that is you know, $28.4 million, you know, $28 million is nothing to shake a finger at. I mean, it, it's not, you know, that, that that's a lot of money, especially to be raised in a very short amount of time. But out of the many lessons I wish people would learn about Donald Trump, there's one that sticks out to me more and more and more. And that's that you don't understand underestimate this guy. Whether you like him, whether you hate him, the guy's entire career has been defined by how people have underestimated him and his ability to do something and his ability 
to achieve this, to achieve that. And somehow or another, the guy pulls it off anyway. I mean, like, remember, uh, you, you remember all the infamous polls from back in the 2015, 2016 election. Right cycle. I mean, the Huffington Post showed him. Yeah, it was like a 94% chance of Hillary Clinton winning. Made him a little bit off with that stat there. What happens? Trump wins in an absolute landslide in the Electoral College, not in the popular vote, obviously, but in the Electoral College, he completely and totally dominated. Uh, so, you know, like I said, I would say, you know, don't, under, don't underestimate Donald Trump. A lot of the pundits are saying, oh, well, 43 percent of Democrats want impeachment right now. We're seeing, you know, some of the highest levels of unpopularity of any president at this point, uh, you know, in the in their administration, I would say, you know, Trump, his entire career, both in politics and in business, has been defined by his ability to make these sort of, you know, surprising comebacks that just come out of nowhere. Uh, with that being said, though, Brady, I mean, I would just like to remind people, you know, money isn't isn't always everything. Right. I mean, if we also look back on the Trump versus Hillary election uh, back in 2016, she outspent him four to one. She raised four times as much money as he did, and he still beat her. I mean, so I would say, you know, like, Money is a very poor indicator of uh, you know of a candidate's ability, uh, you know to you know to to do well and ultimately to win. I think there are so many variables that we have yet to foresee here uh, as far as what what the outcome could be uh, for 2020. I don't think this should be much of a, a foreshadowing, but hey, I'll say once again, 28.4 million dollars is not not a figure to shake your finger at by any means. Right, and, and to put that number in perspective. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke all received fawning praise from the media because of their their uh their donation numbers they each brought in brought in between six and six and six and a half million the first day of their campaigns which is a lot of money but the fact that the president raised four times that is is incredible i mean and like you said money isn't everything but uh it sure doesn't hurt (laughs) but my, my biggest takeaway seeing that that dollar amount that came in last night and just seeing all the energy around trump's uh his event in Florida and, and, and stuff. It's like, look, if you paid attention to the corporate press, you'd think that Trump is done, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, if, yeah, if you pay yeah. attention. You think he's another Richard right, Nixon. Exactly. Or or Gerald Ford, maybe, you know, after he pardoned Nixon, you know, like he, he had no chance to win re-election. But it's like, I, we're living in two entirely different worlds. I mean, the, the world that the corporate press has created tells you that Donald Trump's going to be impeached <laughs> or he'll be in prison. Yeah. <laughs> he won't even be able to stand for re-election. And if he does, he'll lose to you know Democrat X by 15 points. I mean, we live in parallel universes. I mean, we're not speaking the same language right now. Obviously, the narrative that the corporate press has created about the president is false. If if you know <laughs> if Donald Trump is able to raise almost 25 million dollars in one day. Obviously, he has a lot of support, and and around half of that was was small donors. Actually, I believe ten million was like you know the the big time GOP donors with with deep pockets. Most of it was from small donors through phone banking and and through uh, you know internet marketing and stuff. So, it look obviously I know CNN's full of shit. I know the New York Times is you know or the the failing New York Times as the president calls it is is just a propaganda yeah, a propaganda rag at this point. I understand that, but. Even I don't know if you feel this way too, Reed, but even guys like me, who you know, who's a conservative political commentator, I still get it. Still messes with my head sometimes. Just being on Twitter, seeing what the corporate press has to say about Trump, like it almost creeps into the back of my head. Like, man, does this guy even have a chance? It seems like everybody's against him. It seems like his approval rating's terrible. And it's like, no, 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 wait, no, no. He absolutely has yeah. a good chance. I'd give him a better than a fifty-fifty chance at being reelected. 
it's just it's staggering yeah, to me. Reality absolutely. and then the false reality that the corporate press has tried to build could not be farther from each other. No, no, no. Yo, Brady, you're absolutely correct. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's something I've been saying to a lot of my friends and a lot of my buddies in politics for at least the last year. I mean, we're seeing two fundamentally alternate universes in existence here between the reality or like you said the false reality of what the mainstream media is producing and what's actually happening in the world i mean and you know and i look back on american history and i can't think of, a, of another time where there was a greater disparity where there was a greater disconnect uh between like you know like the, the ordinary folks of this country the hard-working mom and pops of this country and and the narrative that the mainstream media was pushing out but yeah you're right i mean if you listened to the mainstream media if you listen to those talk head idiots on CNN, on MSNBC, you know, N NBC, any of those sources. If you listen to that, BuzzFeed, you name it, uh, you know, my God, you're going to think that Donald Trump is bound to be, you know, put in handcuffs right. tomorrow, you know, hauled off, you know, somewhere. It's it's absolutely crazy. You know, the, the sort of you know, different universe they're operating in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And real quick, just a side note, sorry to immediately get off topic, like I usually do, and the audience, I'm sure, is not surprised by that. Um, but uh, I, I've been trying to get this going. I, I heard a, a guy named Michael Malice, who's a, a libertarian author and commentator, um, yes. started this uh, a, a few months ago, and I totally agree with him. I, I don't call the mainstream media the mainstream media. I call them the corporate press. because, And, and as Michael yes. Malice put it, and I wholeheartedly agree with him. There's nothing mainstream about what these monsters are doing. Like, we shouldn't be normalizing the New York Times and CNN by calling them mainstream. There's nothing mainstream about trying to take down a sitting president because you don't like him. Like, there's nothing normal or mainstream about becoming nothing more than the propaganda arm of one of the major two political parties. So, like, I don't even—I don't want to give these monsters the respect that calling them mainstream would give them. Like, they're, they're the corporate press— they're run by all these multinational corporations. They're they're propagandists. There's nothing mainstream about uh about what they do and who they are. There's nothing we shouldn't normalize these people. So that's why I've been saying corporate press instead of mainstream media because I just they're not mainstream, man. There's nothing mainstream about the New York Times. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Brady, I mean, you're absolutely correct. That's not just an issue of semantics. I mean, these people, and I'll admit, you know, that was a failure on my part, you know, referring to them as the mainstream media. But, uh, you know, there's nothing about this nonsense they're parroting, this garbage they're parroting, that even remotely, that even by a long stretch reflects what's really happening in reality, that even that, that reflects, uh, you know, how people really feel about the way things are going in this country. I mean, I think, I wish we would have learned that lesson in 2016, just how inaccurate, just how wrong this corporate press really is but i, I gotta give props to a michael malice the willy wonka of a modern <laughs> politics as i've heard him referred to <laughs> the, the, the guy's absolutely awesome and i'll, I'll say his his, uh, his new book uh, the new right it's uh, it's one of the best reads it's that i've been able to crack over in a long good. time so it it's fantastic yes. yeah it's an absolutely on point of an analysis of, of what's going on in today's political world i, I can't recommend uh, a more on point you know fresh, uh, fresh piece of literature, you know, than yeah, the new I, right. I, I have read it and I definitely recommend that everybody reads it. It's really good. He, he takes a deep dive into, uh, um, and we're just promoting his book right now. It's hilarious, <laughs> but he takes a deep yeah. dive into like the alt right and kind of the origins of the alt right and, and how a lot of these people, and the, the, I think the most fascinating part about his book is he goes into how a lot of like libertarians, a lot of like, you know, Ron Paul supporters, kind of transitioned from, you know, liber like, principled libertarians into 
uh, like these racist <laughs> like alt writers, and it's like it's really sad seeing how a lot of those folks have kind of, you know, jumped ship in a way. And I think the alt right is is going away. I think that's dying down. Thank God. But uh, yeah, it was definitely fascinating yeah. for him to point that out. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Is like Michael Malice said, you know, take the red pill, but God, but for God's sakes, don't take the entire <laughs> bottle. But I mean, this also this also goes right back to what you said a minute ago, whether you know, with regard to the mainstream media uh, being so awfully wrong. I mean, if you ask me, it was the mainstream media that put the spotlight on the alt-right back in 2015, 2016, because what they tried to do, they tried to associate Donald Trump with David Duke. They tried to associate the Trump presidency with white supremacy. And what they do, they, they gave these alt-right people exactly the kind of attention they wanted so that they could break their way into mainstream politics. Uh, it's absolutely terrible. And I, I think that, you know, this sort of temporary rise of the alt-right that we saw between, let's say, 2015 and maybe, you know, last year, I think that was uh, that was another product of the sort of, you know, the narrative that the mainstream media is pushing out, just trying to link the Trump presidency with white supremacy and all these other uh, horrible um, ideologies. Yeah, it, it was completely propped up by the corporate press. I mean, like, look, I do this shit for a living, man. Like, I, we both work in politics. And even before I had this podcast, I, I was I've been politically active my whole adult life. I mean, you know, over a decade. And I'd never heard of these people. Like, I'd never heard of Richard Spencer. No. Like, have you heard of Richard Spencer before no. CNN started talking about him all the time? No, no, he was just some weird, of like, loser, not. racist. The overwhelming majority yeah, of course, either. nobody knew who this guy was. He was just some weird, racist loser with 14 Twitter followers. And CNN turned him into a yeah. household name and, and a, a bad, bad haircut. haircut. And, and CNN made him a household <laughs> name. It's like nobody knew who—I didn't know who Jared Taylor was. Like, I, I'm, I'm extremely plugged into the world of politics, like, more than anybody. And I had no idea who these people were until the press— made them famous. I mean, it's just despicable what these clowns have done. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think that this, that's just another opportunity, you know, for, for the people of the United States to wake up and see exactly how destructive, you know, the mainstream media is. I mean, uh, everything from, from making us believe false things about the world going on around us to literally just dividing us against one another uh, so unnecessarily. I mean, uh, whenever you tune into CNN, anything a Republican does is, is going to be Armageddon. Uh, you know, you tune into a lot of right-wing news sources. Anything that the Democrats are doing is going to be a, a complete and total apocalypse in itself. It's going to be the end of the world. You know, the, 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 the um, strands of society are going to unravel at the seams, all sorts of things. And I think that you know, it's time for it's long past due time for people to take a long, cautious look at the kinds of effects uh, that the mainstream media uh, is having on on exactly you know on on society, not just society as a whole, but how we treat each other, how we view each other, how we interpret each other, uh, you know, all, all these sorts of things. But going back to what you said a minute ago, uh, I'm right there with you, Brady. I definitely think that uh, the time of the alt right is is going down. Uh, thank God. I mean, it's it's this long past due time for these bastards, you know, to just to get out of the picture completely, uh, leave the rest of us alone. Uh, they're they're a ghost uh, from a long distant past. Uh, in, in American history, and it's it's time for them to disappear. Absolutely, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and just a, an example <laughs> to prove your point, um, I remember a couple years ago, it might have been, I don't know if it was 2016 or 2017, it was a couple years ago, but there was one of these like racist alt-right like rallies, I think it was called like Unite the Right or something like that. It was one of these Richard Spencer kind of events, yeah. I think it was in Washington, D.C. 50 people showed up, 
and there was 175 <laughs> journalists there covering it. There was three and a half times more members of the corporate press showing up to cover it than there were actual people there. Probably, probably more liberals than Nazis. Yes, by far. Thing. I mean, it was uh, like there's 50 19 <laughs> year old racists that live in their grandparents' basement showed up. And 175 New York Times journalists. It's like, come on, guys. Like, do you realize? I mean, you're you're clowns. You're clowns. I mean, you're you're making mountains out of molehills. Like, why are you trying to unnecessarily divide the country? Oh my goodness. It's like we, there's real shit going on, Reed. Like, yeah, we have man. real problems in this country. <laughs> and you know, 50 kids in a conference room drinking milk is really not one of them. I'm sorry. Like, that's just, <laughs> I'm not, I do not fear them. Like, I do not yeah. fear Richard Spencer and his cousins or whatever. Like, I, they, like there's a lot of things in this <laughs> world that, that scare me. Like, nuclear war scares me, right? <laughs> like, you know, like Iran developing nuclear weapons, that scares me. You know what I mean? Like, the, like, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and these countries like actually putting journalists to death. That scares me. Socialism scares me. Richard Spencer, come on, man. I can yeah. like give me give me a break. No, I mean I, I'm right there with Brady. I can tell you right now, it's going to take a hell of a lot more to convince me that uh, that a couple dozen you know, 15 year old uh, you 15 year old trolls with swastika memes are going to bring down the United States of America and democracy <laughs> with it. You know, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm not, I'm not quite that gullible, you know, call me what you will, but I'm not quite that gullible to believe that people like that, that's such a, such a microscopic fringe element is nearly as big a threat to this country as let's say our $22 trillion debt, our $300 billion right. deficit, a massive hyperinflation, Bernie Sanders, uh, the fact that right now we're, we're bombing Houthi Rebels in Yemen, where we're killing innocent brown people uh, in the Middle East. You know, for what reason? Who knows? Uh, I'm not. I'm not quite ready to buy in to this narrative that, that this alt right is nearly as big a threat to this country as the issues that we all ought to be talking about, including this corporate Absolutely. press. Absolutely, I, I agree a hundred percent. So, all right, I, I hate doing this. I don't want to do it. I, I don't talk about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez because it's fun. Oh, man. I talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez oh. because she leaves me no choice. I Listen, bitch, if you shut your mouth, I'll stop making fun of you. Like, we will stop focusing on you if you will just exercise your right to remain silent. She does not have the ability to do that. AOC is at it again. Uh, yesterday, she just really, it was a real humdinger yesterday, a real doozy. Um, she started talking about, I believe it was like Instagram Live at first, and then a tweet storm doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on this nonsense, saying that we're operating concentration camps on the southern border. She repeated over and over that they're concentration camps, comparing them to Auschwitz and comparing it to uh, the Holocaust, literally invoking the term never again, which was coined uh, meaning, you know, never let another Holocaust happen again. You, you don't say never again unless you're invoking Nazism. I mean, that that is what that phrase means. Um Look, back on back, you know, we can let's slam AOC, obviously, but a lot of this conversation is going to be slamming the press again because the entire corporate press defended her and said, oh, yeah, you know, like, no, we, yeah, we are. Yeah, no, no we are a Nazi country. We do have concentration camps on the southern border. AOC didn't do anything wrong. Like my friend Greg Price over on Twitter pointed out that AOC could literally shoot someone on, on Fifth Avenue and the press would defend her and blame Trump, right? Like Trump's comment, yeah, how he could I mean, shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any support. 
AOC could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose the press's support. Like, it is absolutely pathetic. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. AOC farts, and then there's the corporate press there to applaud her for it. Oh, wait, never mind. AOC doesn't like farts because she's trying to fight climate change and all of that anyway. But, uh, yeah, man, I mean, you're absolutely right. Just when— Whatever. It sounds like something in politics can't get any dumber. It's almost like AOC looks at Bernie and says, hold my beer. You know, and then she says, watch yeah, this. Leroy, uh, Leroy but, Jenkins, man. She's yeah, just but, Leroy Jenkinsing the, the left. That's what she's doing. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you're, you're totally right. And, uh, you know, I think that, that to compare you know the, the the operations of border control and ICE. Uh, you know whether whether you whether you like border control, whether you like whether you're you know closed borders, open borders, however you feel on the immigration issue. Uh, to make that kind of comparison uh, is a, it's not just offensive; it, it's absolutely purely ignorant. And you know, like I'm the last person to throw around what people should be offended by. I really hate using the word offensive. It's something that I've tried to throw out of my vocabulary. The more that I've heard it frivolously used uh, by people on the left. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, to compare what we're doing on the border uh, to the Holocaust is an insult, you know, to countless untold millions of people, uh, you know, past and pa- past and present. I mean, it, it absolutely is. And I, I, I would say that uh, AOC deserves uh, AOC. Um, the, 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 well, the American people deserve an apology uh, from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for her, for her ignorance, for her stupidity uh, and, and for such a such a drastically uh, incorrect and just ignorant statement. I'm starting to think she's actually a Republican plant. Like there's, there's, you think, you think she's a Republican plant? Like, like Like there's no way she's like, that's, that can't be a real person. Like there's nobody, there's nobody that's, nobody's that stupid. She's the best thing for conservative. She's the best thing that's happened to conservatism in decades. I mean, she absolutely is. She, she's, and I don't know if she's, I don't know if she's intending to do it, but she's positioning herself as the perfect straw man or strong woman in this case, straw woman. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, just like, you know, and but it, but it's true, though. I mean, if you're if you're going to embrace your so-called democratic socialism, which in my opinion is not dem- democratic, socialism has never been democratic and it is antithetical to democracy. But if you're going to embrace that ide- that ideology, you have to be at least a, a little bit ignorant. Uh, you ha- you can't be well read on issues like economics, on issues like human nature. Uh, you absolutely can't be if you're going to embrace viewpoint uh, as backwards, as illiterate, as obsolete, uh, as, as something like socialism, and no matter what form, uh, and no matter what yeah, form. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and look, if, if Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy were mad scientists in a lab somewhere, I don't think they could construct a better example to not vote for Democrats than AOC. I mean, really. I mean, she is like, yikes. And you're absolutely right about, you know, quote-unquote democratic socialism, man. Like, socialism is slavery and I talk about socialism and communism a ton on this show. So my audience already knows this, but like socialism is slavery. If you vote, for, if you vote for it, yeah. it's still slavery. It's like calling it democratic slavery. Okay. How did the, how did the black slaves in the South feel about that? Okay. Like there was a majority opinion yeah. in the, in the deep South, you know, pre emancipation, there was a majority opinion among voters that slavery should be legal. Did that make slavery any less evil? Of course not. And slavery and socialism are literally the exact same thing. I mean, they, I, you can just use those terms interchangeably, in my opinion. So, yeah, I, I don't respect the will of voters if, if they're voting away my God-given liberties. I mean, I, I'm not supposed to respect that because you throw the word democracy in front of it. I mean, fuck democracy. I don't like, look, if you're advocating for slavery, then you can take your democracy and shove it up your ass because I just don't I don't respect it.
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with, with everything you said there, Brady. Um, you know, democratic socialism in itself, just the term, is as oxymoronic uh, as it gets, you know. But, uh, you know, you're at socialism is slavery. You know, the, the difference is, is that whenever you're living under socialism, you're a slave to your government. And, and there's the there's the age old adage uh, that goes, you, you can you can vote your way into socialism, but you, you have to shoot your way back out of it once again. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And I I think we can point to numerous historical examples and present day examples where, you know, that that's absolutely the case. You know, something that, that I encourage, uh, you know, other people within, within the conservative and libertarian movements to look at is the real world example uh, that we're seeing is in South America today uh, in the once prosperous country of Venezuela. I mean, I, I don't think that people on the right or the left quite grasp. Uh, the severity of the downfall of, of, of the country of Venezuela. We look at, at 1961. Uh, 1961, Venezuela was the first country in the world to be declared free of malaria. Now we look at the modern socialized healthcare system, and there are over 100,000 cases of malaria reported across Venezuela every year because the, the socialist healthcare system has gone bankrupt. They're, they're going under hyperinflation. And, and all these other sorts of things. Whenever we look further at the Venezuelan healthcare system, and bringing up healthcare for an important reason here, out of the many things I could talk about uh, pertaining to Venezuela, but uh, one third of all patients admitted uh, to to hospitals in Venezuela die there. They die there. A third of patients admitted to Venezuelan public hospitals are dying there. There are armed guards being stationed outside of Venezuelan hospitals that are stationed there specifically for the purpose of keeping people from going inside those hospitals and documenting the horrific the horrific conditions that are taking place inside. There have been numer numerous journalists from the United States and elsewhere that have gone to Venezuela that have documented these absolutely horrific conditions. And what are they met with? They're met with armed guards standing outside of a hospital uh, telling them they, they can't go inside. And the issues with, with Venezuela, they just go deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, whenever you look at a whole multitude of issues and you take a good historical look at it, uh, uh, you know, we really have a textbook example of what happens whenever a country uh, is not vigilant enough against that transition from capitalism into the darkness of socialism. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I kind of want to get into the, you know, a status update on what's going on right now in Venezuela in a second. But I think it's important to just keep reiterating this, you know, going back to what you said, you know, you can vote your way into socialism, but you have to shoot your way out. The decline of Venezuela into into communism it wasn't like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara in Cuba where they led a, a violent revolution and slaughtered their political opponents. The Venezuelan people voted for this. I mean, they, they voted, they voted yes. Yes. for, for, for Chavez. I mean, they, they voted for the communists willingly in free and fair elections. That, that does not make socialism less I evil. Think, I think that doesn't th make that's... these murderous satanic dictators any less evil. You know, they use democracy to institute communism these people voted for communism. That's why, you know, I, I don't view Bernie Sanders, and look, some people might disagree with this, but I don't view Bernie Sanders as any less evil than Stalin. Like, I truly don't. Both wanted to enslave the entire planet under their state. You know what I mean? Well, I don't know if Bernie wants to enslave the whole planet, but he certainly wants to enslave every U.S. citizen. You know, I, I don't view that as any less evil than if you're doing it violently. Yeah, like, if you're doing it democratically, yeah. you're still an evil communist like you're still a monster who wants me to be your slave and that is evil that is slavery so i, I don't care if it's th you know through guns or through votes like it, it's it's the same it makes no difference to me at all 
Yeah, Brady, I mean, you're absolutely correct there. You know, the means whereby, the methods whereby, um, you know, the socialists or the communists in Venezuela took over, the means were perfectly legal according to the laws that were instituted in Venezuela at the time. I mean, Hugo Chavez was democratically elected in 1999 in a, in a fair and square election. Uh, and I think that makes that makes uh, socialism elsewhere an even more terrifying prospect. You know, the fact that it can deceive, the fact that it can lie its way into office, and then the, it, it, the, the, the effects are almost irreversible. But when we take a step back and we actually look at how Venezuela got there, uh, go, let's, let's go back to the 1970s. The 1970s, without getting too historical here, that was whenever Venezuela nationalized its its oil industry. Uh, then after that happens, we begin to see hyperinflation. We see rampant government corruption. We see crony capitalism taking place. We see uh, elected presidents of Venezuela doing special favors, you know, for their corporate buddies, and more and more and more. Uh, of, of this government control of, of the free market and all these things, what does this do? This creates the economic instability of the 1990s that Hugo Chavez was able to campaign against and say that he was going to fix. So what happened here? And in, in the case of Venezuela, socialism actually created economic instability and then posited itself as the solution, as the sole solution to that economic instability. The, the, it, 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 it posited itself as the as the uh, the road to economic prosperity in Venezuela once again, and I could go on all day with with exactly how horrific the conditions are. Now, you know, uh, but I'm I'm so glad you brought up Bernie Sanders uh, because whenever I look at the promises Bernie Sanders uh, made in in his in his elections uh, for U.S. Senate for 2016 and now, it's staggering. It's more staggering than anybody realizes just how closely uh, what Bernie Sanders has said throughout his various campaigns to what Hugo Chavez has said. Just like I've said to many of my colleagues, I really think Bernie Sanders could be, be mistaken for Hugo Chavez's American political do doppelganger. Uh, to, to be more specific, in 1999, we began to see Hugo Chavez campaigning that health care was, and I quote, a constitutional right. A constitutional and a human right. What does that sound like there, Brady? It wasn't, it, it was only just a couple of years later that Bernie Sanders started making this one of his campaign promises, namely in his, in his run for president in 2016 and now in his current run for president uh, elsewhere. So, something else that we've seen is that in 1999 and again for Hugo Chavez's re-election campaign a couple of years later, we see Hugo Chavez going across the nation of Venezuela and promising that he's going to provide a third way series of solutions to, to, to the economic troubles facing Venezuela. What does it that mean Hugo Chavez is saying that his Chavismo, his variation of socialism, is going to be a fair balance between the age-old question of the free market versus centrally planned socialism. We see him making those promises for the first time in his re-election in 1999, and then just a few years later in his re-election campaign. We see socialists doing the same exact thing in this country. Whenever they first start to campaign, whenever they first start to get a little bit of power and a little bit of influence, they reel ordinary voters in by by saying, oh, well, we're going to have a strong free market. We're going to boost small businesses. We're going to grow the economy from the middle out. This is going to be an economic environment where people can start their own business, but they're going to be required to pay their fair share as well. It's going to be a third-way middle ground between the free market and socialism. But we go back down to Venezuela, and what do we see? There's not a shred of the free market absolutely anywhere. Uh, it, you know, the, every, every bit of free enterprise has been completely and totally 
eradicated from everyday life in Venezuela. It's not just the food lines we're seeing, the infamous food lines where, wherein people have to wait for several hours just so they can get food. And maybe they won't get food at all. It's not just the gas lines where people are waiting perhaps an entire day just to get fuel for their cars and everything else. It's just people's businesses being taken away. These are hardworking people whose livelihoods are being stripped from them uh, because other people voted for their rights to be taken away. Um, and, you know, and so what I'm saying is I really wish people would pay a lot more attention to the empty campaign promises and the bold lies, the bold-faced lies of Hugo Chavez and recognize just how similar they are to the kinds of promises that we're seeing from Bernie Sanders and others in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And it's also important, you you pointed out, that the decline of Venezuela didn't start with with Chavez. It it started in the 70s, I believe, 1976, if I'm not mistaken. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But that was when they nationalized the oil industry. And that, that parallels perfectly what the Democrats are trying to do now with health care. I mean, there's 24 Democrats running for president. 23 of them have proposed um, uh, nationalizing the health care system. 23. The only one that hasn't is John Hickenlooper, and he has about a 0% chance of becoming president. So, uh, you know, he's, he's polling at 1%. Yeah. So 23 out of the 24 Democrats have endorsed nationalizing the largest industry in the United States, the largest part of the U.S. economy. Yes. That's exactly what Venezuela did. That's what the Democrats are trying to do right now here. How do we stop them? Like, how, how do we stop the growth of socialism? I mean, if you rewind to the late 80s, early 90s, when we beat communism the first time, my goodness, if you could bring Ronald Reagan back from the dead and say, hey, we have to defeat communism again, but this time within our own borders, he'd be like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, he'd, he'd shit his pants, man. Yeah, he wouldn't be able to believe it. But we well, have to. Like, we, we have to defeat socialism again. Uh, how do we do it? Well, I think that's a very valid question there, Brady. Whenever we look at the example of uh, – whenever we look at this dark transition that took place in Venezuela, I believe that we see three key st- – Stages. We see deception, we see disarmament, and disenfranchisement. The deception began with the Hugo Chavez campaign in 1998 and 1999 as he was running for re-election again. As I said, he gave this false idea that he was going to provide a third way, sort of the, the, this uh, sort of realistic balance between the free market and between centrally planned socialism that he said that he that he promised the people of Venezuela. So stage one, that was deception. Stage two is disarmament. This took place in 2000. 2012, uh, you might you might already know that Venezuela that in Venezuela they have absolutely strict gun control. Um, there was a law passed in 2012 that completely and totally criminalized firearm possession among ordinary people with prison sentences up to 20 years just for firearm possession. Uh, even even within the privacy of your own home, criminalized firearm possession, except of course um, by by government authorities and government forces and things of that nature. So we saw. Stage one, it was deception. Uh, it was the, the widespread deception, the numerous lies that, that Hugo Chavez gave uh, about his vision, Chavismo, for the people of Venezuela. The second stage was disarmament. This was the mass disarmament of the Venezuelan people. The third phase was disenfranchisement. This was a very, very long process, but this was Hugo Chavez and his administration's uh, widespread dismantling of the Venezuelan uh, you know, basically you're reducing the the amount of representation that the people of Venezuela had in their nationwide legislature down to nil. 
very slowly and gradually reducing it by uh, primary legislators um, um, hijacking elections and packing packing the, packing the courts, getting Chavez supporting justices on the Venezuelan Supreme Court who will rule in favor of Chavez whenever legislative challenges, whenever electoral challenges are brought to the courts, um, whatever legislative challenges are brought to the courts about whether or not this election was fair, you make sure that justices are put on that court. Uh, you make sure that justices are put in the Supreme Court who will rule in favor of, of the Chavez-appointed legislator every single time. So I really think we can look at Venezuela from 1999 until the present day. We can break it down into these three key stages, and we can get sort of uh, a blueprint for exactly how Hugo Chavez uh, and his cronies took over Venezuela. We can compare that to the kind of to the kinds of events that we're seeing in the United States, and we can prepare ourselves accordingly. But it's going to take being informed. It's going to take being vigilant. It's going to take being prepared, and it's going to require action. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And look, my audience is is very smart. I have a lot of uh, very high IQ individuals listening to this podcast, but uh, so most of them know where this is going already. <laughs> but for anybody that might be confused. Everything Reed laid out can also describe the current Democratic Party in the United States, point by point. The disinformation. They don't even need to spread disinformation. The corporate press will do it for them. Enough said. Okay. Disarmament. Obviously, they've been trying to destroy the Second Amendment for decades. I mean, every Democrat, aside from, I guess, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, is anti-Second Amendment. I mean, literally, every single one except for Joe Manchin. I think Joe Manchin's still an NRA member or whatever. Everyone else, every yes. single elected Democrat except for Joe Manchin is anti-gun. And then, uh, oh, wait, what was the third one? I just got lost. Uh, Disenfranchised. Well, the Democrats are already talking about that. You know, every Democrat yeah. running for president, yeah, every college, Democrat right? running for president right. is talking about packing the Supreme Court, eliminating the Electoral College. Right? I mean, they they're already trying to destroy these institutions. And uh, my goodness, I don't even know what they're going to do if one of them manages to to take the White House and and God forbid the Senate as well. I, the Senate map looks pretty favorable for for uh, Republicans in 2020, but um. Yeah, I mean, look, everything you laid out regarding the fall of Venezuela is what the Democrats are trying to do right now in our country. It is just it's astounding. Yes, I mean, whatever you look at at current Democratic candidates in this country or current current Democrats in the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate or Democratic governors who are campaigning uh, for things like, you know, universal health care, Medicare for all, as they call it, any of that sort of thing, they also support. The other uh, key platform planks that Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro and other socialists in other countries have also supported, uh, you know, ma- mass disarmament, you know, uh, where you know, this or that, whatever else. But you're right. Whenever it comes to the question of deception, it doesn't really matter the means whereby uh, they they deceive uh, the American people. Uh, you're, you're right. They don't even have to tell lies themselves. They can get the ma- the sorry the corporate right, media right. Uh, to do it <laughs> to do it for them. Uh, so so you're absolutely. Correct, but I would definitely encourage people, uh, you know, to, to really take a look at, at the circumstances of Venezuela, to look at the decline of Venezuela through those uh, through those three key stages: deception, disarmament, uh, disenfranchisement. And I really think that offers us uh, at least the, the majority of the insight that we need. But I can tell you something else to remember: any philosophy that requires disarmament or disempowerment of its own citizenry in order to exist ought to invoke. A 
little bit of skepticism. Any philosophy or any idea that demands that I be dis- disarmed uh, or or anything like that ought to require ought to invoke a little bit of skepticism and a little bit of criticism from ordinary yeah, people. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. So, Reed, this was a lot of fun, man. We get we definitely have to do this again soon. Um, I know I got to let you go. We're already a little over time, but uh, before I let you go, where can everybody follow you online and keep in touch with you? And where can everybody uh, get involved with uh, YAL? Uh, sure. As far as getting involved with Young Americans for Liberty, we are on Facebook uh, and we're on Twitter uh, as well. You can also go to our website, uh, http uh, colon forward slash forward slash yaliberty.org. Uh, there are a multitude of different ways uh, you can get uh, involved on there uh, through our uh, maybe through our program operation one at the door, or if you're a college student uh, starting a chapter uh, on your on your campus, or uni- uh, on your college or university campus. Uh, as far as following me, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as well. Follow me on Twitter at Reed Cooley. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about right, it. Everybody, follow Reed. He's great. Um, that's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Monday. No gimmicks. Um.